Taylor, the uh, famous New York minister, the famous New York pastor, he tells the story of his wife's battle with illness. So Kathy Keller apparently suffers from a chronic disease that um, on one instance left her very gravely, very, very seriously ill. Now, you and I might have expected that to be a, a time of a almost unmitigated gloom. It's not right to, to, to see a spouse in such a situation or to be in that situation yourself. A time of pure, unadulterated worry and darkness, right? That's what we would expect. Uh, well, not according to Tim Keller. He said that there in that time of darkness, by God's grace, there was light. That at the time that as the couple sought God, what God did for them was grant them this really special, peculiar burden for prayer. That at this time that God blessed them with this passion that they both had in this really difficult time, a passion to seek communion with God. And it was a passion for prayer that continued long after Kathy Keller returned to full health. What was that? And what was that? That was goodness from God at a time of great adversity. Goodness from God at a time of great hardship. That's what that was. And as we continue our sermon series in Ecclesiastes, that's what we see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Maybe you can even see that in the text. If you look at the end of chapter 6 with me, you can see what happens. Solomon in verse 10, he speaks of the sovereignty of God straight away at the beginning of this section. Like he speaks of God being the God of control. God is the one who has named everything. He's a sovereign God, verse 10. And because of that, same verse, there's no point in us arguing, no point in us disputing with a sovereign God when things in our lives go wrong. But that's not the end of the story. I'm sure you followed it in the reading what happens in chapter 7. In this poem that's before us tonight, Solomon speaks of so many of the negative and difficult things of life. Did you pick up on them? He speaks of death. He speaks of sorrow. He speaks of mourning. He speaks of pride. He speaks of corruption. He speaks of bribery. All of these negative things. And his point is this. That for the people of God, there are ways that we are to respond to adversity. And if we respond properly, biblically, to adversity, what happens? Well, as Tim Keller would affirm, that even in the times of hardship in our lives, goodness from God comes. Even in the times of adversity, goodness from God can be found. That's what we're dealing with this evening. So I will ask you as a congregation to please turn with me and have these verses open in front of you. Ecclesiastes 7. And first of all, let's note together, we see here that we must learn from death. We must learn from death. 
Um, it's surely true that of all the negative experiences a person can have in this life, the most awful experience is, of course, to lose someone close to us. Be that a child or a, a parent or a friend or a colleague, to be bereaved is, of course, the most awful and the most horrible thing. And so, in light of that, what Solomon says in verse 1 is almost beyond belief. Isn't it? I mean, have a look. I mean, it starts out fine. We're okay with how it starts, aren't we? He says, look, a good name is better than fine perfume. You're okay with that. Okay with that. But what's the next bit here? He says, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now that sounds crazy almost. Doesn't it sound kind of ludicrous? And I'll tell you this, it doesn't get any easier or any better as you move on. Look at verse 2. At verse 2, he says, it's better to go to a house of mourning. So it's better to go to a funeral home, to a funeral, than a marriage or something like that. Better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Now, aren't you with me tonight? That That's upside down, isn't it? Like, doesn't it seem to be on its head? I mean, it's got almost that kind of counterintuitive ring that the Beatitudes have, Right? It sounds almost like blessed are those who mourn. So how do we make sense of this? Like Solomon is clearly saying that there is a benefit. There's something positive in the death of other people. I mean, what do we make of that? Well, isn't this true? That there's nothing like a funeral to bring our own lives into view. Nothing like a funeral to make us evaluate our own life. I, I, I remember distinctly uh, standing at the graveside of a friend of mine uh, at the funeral. And this was a, uh, actually a colleague of mine. Okay, so uh, this is somebody that I, uh, I worked with as I was training for uh, the ministry. And he was a young bloke, and he got ill, and then he got more ill, and then he died. And there's me standing at the grave at the funeral in the cold and the rain. And I remember my thought process. I remember what I was thinking. I was just standing there, and I thought about his wife. I could see her, and I remember thinking, how is she going to cope with this situation? And then I remember thinking about the two little children that he was leaving behind and I remember thinking about them I'm not ashamed to say that then I thought about myself see there I'd been imagining all of these decades of Christian service ahead of me all of these years and years and years in the ministry and I was shaken because as I watched this guy's body being lowered into the ground, I realized maybe it won't be like that. Maybe I won't have all of these years. Like, Do you see what happened? The death woke me up. And isn't that what Solomon is saying here? That the death of other people, it makes us ask questions of ourselves. And isn't that true? 
you know, the, at a funeral, it's almost like death stands in front of us and shakes us. And we ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, what are we doing with our lives? And, and, and this person's gone. Am I serving Jesus as I should be? This person is dead. He's gone. Am I ready to meet my maker? Do you see? Like death of others makes us really rattled. It makes us ask questions of ourselves. But what about this? How do we respond to death? Now, we are supposed to learn about adversity and how to respond to adversity here. What is he saying? How do we respond to death? Well, is it not what you read at the end of verse 2? Is that not the lesson? Now, he says this, we all die. He says, death is the destiny of every man. Every one of us will die. How do we respond? What does he say? The living should take this to heart. Do you see what he's saying? We, the people of God, the children of God, we must not hide from death. Do you see that? That we, the church of Jesus Christ, that we should stand up and we should go face to face with death. And let me tell you what you already know if you're a Christian this evening. You can only do that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? The very fact that that we can only stand up and confront death without fear if we are standing united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is that? Well, what has Christ done? He's defeated death. Isn't that, isn't that the glory of the gospel that we have to proclaim? That the Lord Jesus Christ has absolutely conquered this one great foe. And now what can you and I do tonight? We can stand. We can face the fact that we're going to die. In fact, what do we know? We know that actually what Solomon says here is beautifully true. What is true in Christ Jesus The day of your death is going to be better than the day of your birth. In Christ Jesus, in the gospel, it's true. So we must learn from death. Second thing uh, we've got to learn here, or got to note here, rather, is that we must learn from others. I don't know if, if you see the structure or the format of what he's doing in chapter 7. He deals with death and mourning from verse 1 to verse 4. From verse 5, it's much more, I think, about choices. You know, things that are either, you can put them in the bracket or the box of being really foolish things or wise. So what have we got? Well, you know, you know what it's like at this time of year. Uh, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. Uh, this time of year, there's nothing but silly daft songs everywhere you go uh, you go into a shop to do your Christmas shopping what's on the, the tannoy system but Rudolph the red nosed reindeer or uh, my children what were they singing yeah, earlier on today uh, Santa got stuck up a chimney you know uh, absolutely ludicrous songs at this time of year now Solomon, believe it or not, talks about that sort of idea here. 
And look what he says about them in verse 6, the songs of the foolish. <laughs> he says, verse 6, these things are like the crackling of thorns under the pot. Now, do you see the image? You know, if you're making a fire, the sort of the nettles, the leaves, the little twigs you put in that just get burnt up in seconds. That's what he's saying these songs and these frivolities are. That really, though they are harmless and sometimes quite attractive to us at this time of year, they're meanings ultimately. So we see what's not worthwhile, but it's actually what Solomon contrasts with that that I find fascinating. So we know that the songs of the fools, frivolities, they're, they're daft, they're meaningless. What's better than that? in verse 5 though? Do you see? He says, he says it's better to be rebuked and aren't you with me again when i say that that's counterintuitive and it seems upside down again doesn't it he's saying it's a good thing people it's a great thing to get around (laughs) to be rebuked so what does he mean let me ask you this if this evening you were to look back on your life is this not true that often the times of adversity and difficulty in your life, so many of them have been self-inflicted. Not true? Certainly true of my life. I'm sure it's true for many here. Some of the difficulties, some of the hardships that we have gone through in our lives, who's brought them on? <laughs> no one but ourselves. We look back to maybe an inability to, to pay for something that we need, an inability even to pay the rent or the mortgage. Why can't we do it? Because we've used our money foolishly elsewhere. Or a relationship in the past has totally broken down and severed. Why? Well, we've got to hold up our hands and say, well, actually now with hindsight, you see, it was me that did it. Or there's a problem at work. And really, who's to blame? We hold up our hands and say it is us. Now, here's the thing. What happens at times like that very often? Isn't it true that very often when we make a mess of things like that, somebody comes alongside and has a word with us? Isn't that right? You make a mess and your dad steps in or a parent steps in and says, look, you can't do that. They have a word in the ear or your boss comes alongside and and he gives, he tears strips off us. Well, do you see what Solomon is saying here? He's actually underlining the importance of us listening at times like that. Of seeing that rebukes of the wise are important. That we need to pay attention to these things. And so I bring it to you. And I ask this of you. Does that sound part of your character? Are you humble enough to heed a rebuke? Are you, do you have a teachable spirit? Now let me unpack that a little bit. Imagine that a family member came to you today and they had a word in your ear about the way that you are behaving at this point in your life. How do we deal with that? How would you respond to that? What about an elder of the church? What if that were to happen? That even if The man did not want to do it. (laughs) But if he felt that he had to do it, if an elder came to you tonight 
and had a word in your ear about your Christian walk, would you even entertain what that man had to say? Or most serious of all, what if the Holy Spirit this morning or tonight or next week came to you in the power of God's word with a rebuke or with a challenge? How do you respond to that? What would you do? What would your heart do? Because what are we seeing here? We're seeing that in times of adversity, heeding a rebuke can serve us very, very well indeed. So we learn from death. We learn from others. Thirdly, we learn to live patiently now in the present. Okay, now, we're working our way through. We get to verse 7, and from verse 7 to verse 10, it's almost like we're under kind of gunfire because the wisdom sayings are shot at a very thick and fast. And you maybe notice that from verse 7 to verse 10, they come at us a million miles an hour. Okay, so what have we got? The first bullet is in verse 7. Look at it with me. Solomon simply says extortion turns a wise man into a fool and bribe corrupts the heart. I guess you can see the focus, can you? It's the same as last week. Were you here last week? Do you remember what the focus was? It was money. It was readies. It was dough. It was cash, wasn't it? And it's the same here. And you see what Solomon is saying. That the opportunity to make money through even illicit means... It can lead even the most honorable man astray, can't it? And then we see the second bullet, and it whizzes past your ear in verse 8. Now have a look. Solomon says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. You see what he's saying? That a solid outcome of something is surely to be preferred than just the mere sort of flicker of an idea that we might have. The end of something is much better than the beginning. Then in verse 9, he begins to speak about our temperament, I think, in adversity. Patience is needed in times of hardship. And then what? Look at it with me. What does he say? He speaks of anger. Do not be quickly provoked. And do you see why? I think what Solomon is saying here, friends, is that anger is very similar to a squatter. Do you see what I mean? That once we allow bitterness and anger to set up home in our hearts, it is very, very difficult to shift. And then he brings us to the last of these. Now, before we deal with that, let me say this. The advent of the internet in the 1990s and 2000s was a revolutionary thing for the world. And the internet has brought many wonderful things into our lives, great technological advance, great benefits to the internet. Of course, there's another side to it as well. The internet has also brought a lot of terrible things into people's lives too. One of the most fascinating aspects or elements of life that's been kind of facilitated by the internet is surely humanity's desire to reminisce. If you look back to maybe some of you are too young, 
Um, but in the 1990s and 2000s and so forth, do you remember there was a website called Friends Reunited? Nobody's nodding their heads. It was just me that ever looked at Friends Reunited. But Friends Reunited. And, and you know what that was. It was people were looking back the way and trying to connect with people they once knew or people they knew at school and that sort of idea. This desire to reminisce, a bit of nostalgia there, wasn't there? That's kind of Friends Reunited. I think it's completely closed now. But that's kind of been replaced. There's, there's other ideas as well, aren't there? You know, there's these websites just now where you get old pictures of your hometown. You know, websites that old pictures of Edinburgh, or old pictures of London or wherever it is you're from. I'm sure you've seen these sorts of things. People love it, man. Like people love this reminiscing about the past and reminiscing about, you know, this nostalgia. Love it. Seems to be part of us. Now, there's nothing wrong necessarily with that. But I think what Solomon's saying here is that that can be dangerous at times of adversity. You see what he, he says here in verse 10? He says, it's foolish to ask, why were the old days better than these? And maybe you can, you can see what he's saying, can you? That it's dangerous at certain times to always be looking back. Think about the person who is battling cancer, who is unable to properly fight that disease. Why? Because they're always looking back to how things used to be before the onset of this disease. Or what about the person who has gone through a breakup? And is unable to get on with the rest of their life. Why? Because they're pining for that person that they used to have. Do you see? Like nostalgia's fine, maybe. But it can be dangerous in certain circumstances. And I want you to apply that to the church. And I want to, I want you to apply it to your spiritual lives. Look, friend, I just ask you, if this all sounds familiar, this idea of reminiscing and nostalgia, like are you a person who loves to look back? Spiritually speaking, though, are you a person who loves to look back? Do you pine after how it used to be? Do you pine after how it once was between you and God? Do you pine after how the church used to be? Do you see the danger? Do you see how dishonorable that can be? God has given you today. And he's given you today not so that you will look at him and say, well, actually, I wish I was living yesterday. Friends, we're not always to look back to the good old days with rose-colored spectacles. We, as the people of God, are to live now. And we are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ today in the present. And then the last thing that we see here. So we've seen that we learn from death. We learn from others. We learn patience for just now. The last thing is that we lean on God. And I think that this is it. I honestly believe that. I think if Solomon were here, he would say, you know, if you take anything away, <laughs> you take this one thing. This last point is the number one point. And you see it with me in verse 13. 
He says, what, what do you do in adversity? What's the main lesson for the people of God in adversity? Well, when times are good, fine. When times are bad, you consider what? The work of God. You consider, in times of adversity, you consider what God has done. The, let me underline it, the work of God. Now, what he does is he gives us a couple of reasons why this is so important. First is this. Because, quite simply, we can't change our circumstances. We can't change the providence of God in our lives. Isn't that what he says in verse 13? Consider what God has done. For who can straighten out what God has made crooked? He's not saying that God is crooked. Okay, we know that, do we? I hope It's not that God has done anything morally criminal. No, it's that God bends things in your life. God perhaps allows the difficult things to happen in your life. Why? So that you will be straightened out. So that you will be brought back to him. But the fact remains, you can't straighten out what God has made crooked in your life. You can't do it. He's the sovereign God. So what must we do? We fall We bow, we worship him, and we consider his work. And then the second reason, we consider the work of God because we don't know why these providences happen. Isn't that the last point? Look with me at the last verse here. He says, consider God. Why? Because man cannot discover anything about his future You see, we don't know what is behind these hardships in our lives. Only God knows why these things happen. So what do we do? We fall, we bow, we fall, prostrate before him. We worship God. Why? Because he does control all of these things. And he does have purpose behind the pain that we might be going through tonight. And let me close by making it seasonal. (laughs) Just think about Mary and the Christmas story. I've been thinking about this all week. Don't we underestimate the hardship for Mary? I mean, being a young woman pregnant out of wedlock in the ancient world, you know, and having to travel cross-country on the verge of giving birth, right? And then having... No comfort at all in order to bear her child. I mean, what hardship, right? Incredible adversity. And what does she do? She does exactly what Solomon is telling you and I to do. Because doesn't she consider the work of God? Like, what do we hear her sing in Luke's gospel? She sings this. My soul glorifies the Lord. God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. The mighty one has done great things for me. Do you see it? Like, in adversity, what does she do? She does what Solomon is commending. She considers the work of God. So I end with this. This Christmas, if you go through a hard time, and it may well be the case for many of us that Christmas isn't easy, if you go through adversity this Christmas, surely you see here what you must do. You must consider 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we learn from death. We learn from others. We learn patience for just now. But we must learn to consider the work of our God because what a work we have to ponder and meditate upon at this time of year, do we not? That this sovereign God that we're talking about, the one who has control of everything, the one who has all of these purposes behind our life, that sovereign God becomes a baby. The Lord of glory. That he condescends to dress himself in these filthy, horrible garments of humanity. The almighty God is born and is born to die. So you praise God tonight that the God who could bring goodness out of the greatest adversity, that of the cross, he is your God. He is tonight a God who loves you and cares for you. Don't you praise him that in the hours of greatest darkness in our lives, that God provides goodness for every single one of his children. Let's pray.